Hey, good morning. Looks like it's going to be a nice day finally. The cold snap broke. It's, uh, it's going to be a great Sunday. It's been a great service so far. Uh, Ed is, uh, is not here. He's, uh, he's in Washington. Um, not D.C. because, as you know, that's closed. Uh, but uh, he's actually in, in Washington State. Somehow, me, somehow we managed to press on despite the closing of the government. I, we're, we're here. We're surviving. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna press on in, in our study this morning of, of the book of Acts. If, if perhaps you're visiting, we're, we're, we're going to spend the entire year studying out just the book of Acts. Um, and it's been a great study so far. Chapter 1, uh, which we finished last week, was, was just so very convicting to me, as I'm sure it has been to you. And one of the most... Uh, Convicting things to me it was was in Acts chapter one verse one, where 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 uh, Luke says that you know I wrote about uh, what Jesus began to do and to teach and how we how we learned that 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 what he began is is on us to continue, and as we study out uh, the book of Acts we see that work being done um, and, it, and it motivates us uh, to. Uh, to, to join in that work as well. And we're going to continue starting in chapter 2 today. So if you want to turn there, we'll start in verse 1. And it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it? that each of us hears them in our native languages. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God Amen. in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. <clears throat> you know, uh, the, the, the setting of our, of our text today, is, is, the Bible says, is, is at Pentecost. Pentecost is what the Greeks called uh, the festival of first fruits, the harvest festival. The, sometimes the Jews call it the festival of weeks. Uh, uh, Pentecost is, is Greek for 50th. And the, 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 the reason sometimes they called, the Jews called it the festival of weeks is because they marked off a week of weeks after Passover. Um, and, and that's when they celebrated the festival of the harvest. So a week of weeks is seven weeks, right? So seven times seven is 49 days. And you know, maybe depending on where the calendar fell, it, it turned out to be 50 days. But at any rate, the Greeks called it Pentecost, right? And it was, it was a harvest festival. It was one of the three big festivals that the Jews were commanded to keep uh, by God. Passover, of course, being the first. Uh, here, uh, Pentecost, or, or the festival of the first fruits. Uh, and then lastly, of course, uh, the Feast of Booths. And uh, 
so specifically to the contest of, uh, context of what we're looking at, this is, this is approximately 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Because we believe that took place around Passover. Here we are uh, a week of weeks after that for Pentecost. So just to kind of give us a little bit of context there. And it says that as the disciples were all together, um, they heard the sound of something like a violent wind. And then later, what appeared to be fire shows up. So we see fire and wind uh, showing up at, on, this, on this holy festival day that they're celebrating together. Fire and wind is a big theme throughout the Old Testament whenever God's about to show up. All right. Um, in Isaiah 66, as, he, as he's finishing up that, that great prophecy, he says, See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. Fire and wind. In 1 Kings 19, when you read about Elijah on Mount Horeb interacting with God, there's wind, there's fire, there's earthquakes, but there's wind and fire. In Exodus 3, God introduces himself to Moses, how? In a burning bush. There's a fire. And, and, and if you remember last fall when we were studying out the book of Exodus and we got to Exodus 19, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and God appears to his people at the top of the mountain in thunder, lightning, fire, smoke. There's this, there's this, there's this representation of God in these elements. And, and that would not have been lost on the disciples as, as, they, as they saw this, this happening. And, you know, but if you think about a huge difference here, this isn't just another story in the Bible. The, the, the God that appeared in fire and wind and smoke and lightning and thunder at Sinai was an unapproachable God. Right. He, he was there and, 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 and Moses told the people, don't go near the mountain. Don't even let your animals go near the mountain. This is an unapproachable God. This is not safe. Right. This fire. You want to stay away from it. But here in Acts chapter two, not only is this fire approachable, but this fire approaches. This is. This is this is this is the fire being distributed. The, uh, the 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 NIV that we read from says that it's separated, um, but but the Greek word has more of a, a meaning of like being distributed or partitioned out. This God, this Holy Spirit, is not is not only approachable, but it's it's giving itself to these disciples. It's giving itself to these people who have chosen to make Jesus Lord and to follow God. This is a monumental shift. In the story of God and his people, it's a monumental shift in history and it's a monumental shift for us as disciples of Jesus. And then it says that they started speaking in tongues. In speaking in tongues, we're going to read about that a lot in the book of Acts in the coming year. It, it's, it's there. You know, and speaking in, in tongues in, in modern Christianity is somewhat of a controversial discussion. We should just kind of acknowledge that, right? And I think there are some movements that overemphasize it and and then there are other move, movements that, that just choose to ignore it and uh, I think if we're going to be disciples of Jesus and, and students of the Bible we should take a minute and kind of dig into this a little bit and, and kind of understand what does the Bible have to say about speaking in tongues you know and and, and, and the passage here lists lists, lists the word for the, the Greek word glossa for tongues in, in two pa in two verses it mentions it in verse four. It mentions it in verse 11. And, and this Greek word, it, 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 it does indeed mean a tongue, like, like, like the tongue in your mouth. 
But it also speak, it also references a specific language, right? A, a specific language that differentiates one people from another. It's an actual language that was being being used here. In in verse five, your NIV will say that that they 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 spoke in these tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then, uh, if you're looking at an English Standard Version or perhaps a, a New American Standard Bible. It'll say it differently. It'll say, as the Spirit gave them utterance. They spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And um, that Greek word uh, for utterance, it, it specifically means to enunciate clearly. So my, my point is that if we look at the language of the Bible, we see that they were speaking languages that can be differentiated from other languages. And that they were enunciated clearly. My point is it wasn't gibberish. right? They weren't speaking some mystical language that, that could not be understand, understood. Excuse me. I mean, the crowd, these, these men who had come from other countries, and it lists them out uh, in, in the passage that we read. They understood these languages. They were clearly understood, right? This is, this is, this is, this is the biblical work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works with a purpose. Right? The Holy Spirit is not sent upon us to entertain and impress. The Holy Spirit is there for a purpose. And, and I, think that, I think that we should, would, should, should consider this. And if, if, if you want to learn about how the Holy Spirit works in its people, you, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 would be a great read. I encourage all of you to read it. It, it, it gives a great dissertation on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what they're for, and, and, and tongues specifically. And if you'll permit me, I'd like, I'd like to just touch on a couple of these things. So if you turn over to 1 Corinthians 14, we're only going to spend a second there. I just think it's important for us to, as disciples of Jesus, as, as people who have been called to proclaim the wonders of God, that we kind of understand what our... Uh, what our texts are all about here in the Bible. But in, in, in chapter 14, you know, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he has been talking to them about spiritual gifts. He's been talking to them about the body of Christ. And, and in chapter 14, he's specifically talking about worship. And in verse 6, I'm just going to pick a few things here. But in verse 6, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will it be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? You know, the words that we speak, no matter what language, they need to be edifying to people. They need to have some kind of a purpose. They need to instruct. They need to teach. They need to convict. In, in, uh, in verse 13 of chapter 14, he says, For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. The words that we say should be intelligible, right? And in verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church... I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And he goes on and he says, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people that even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however... Is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? 
<clears throat> but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in whilst everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. you know, the, 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 the works of the Holy Spirit have a purpose. If you go back to John chapter 16, when Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming, he says he's coming for a very specific reason, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, in the passage that I just read, says what? He says that prophecy convicts those who come in and hear. Right Now, I'm, I'm not saying that people can't speak in tongues. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't enable these things. The Bible tells us that it did. But, it, but it's not gibberish. It's not a circus act. It's not a stunt. It's not meant to entertain, impress. It's meant to convey a message that someone can understand and be convicted by. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's move on. I have this thing where I get like three pages ahead of myself in my notes, and then I have to like go back and look at what I missed. But anyway, the, 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 the title of the lesson today is Empowered and Uninhibited. You know, Acts chapter 2 you know, could be subtitled, Enter the Holy Spirit. Right? We see the Holy Spirit coming and acting in ways that it hasn't acted before. Now, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament even, we will see... People have these interactions with the Holy Spirit. We'll see the Holy Spirit come upon people. In 1 Samuel 19, uh, Saul, the first king of, of, of Israel, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon him and led him to prophesy. Uh, in, in Luke 1, we see Zechariah, the, the, the father of John, uh, the Baptist. The Holy Spirit enters him and he begins to prophesy. But here we see this Holy Spirit being freely given to the followers of Jesus. It's the, it's the empowering force behind what we see them do, what we see them do, going out into the streets and proclaiming the wonders of God in these various languages. The Holy Spirit empowered this. The Holy Spirit will probably next week when we read the rest of chapter 2, or at least more into chapter 2, the Holy Spirit will empower Peter to preach to thousands of people. Peter, of all people, right? The Holy Spirit, throughout the book of Acts, will motivate and empower people to... Sell their possessions so that they can take care of one another. It, it, will, it will empower people to stand up against intense persecution and perhaps even become martyred. All for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And that same spirit is in you. Is in us. If we are Christians, if we are disciples of Jesus. That, that, that same spirit is what has saved you. That same spirit... Is what drives your life. Ephesians 4 uh, verse 4 says there's one body, one spirit, one hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God, and Father. This is the spirit that empowered the characters that we will read about in the book of Acts. What is it empowering you to do? What is going on in your life as a result of the Holy Spirit being so freely given to you? You know, you can only talk like that for so long. And you have to do it quite gently before somebody comes along and says, Tim, you're preaching works. Don't ask me what I'm doing. Let's not talk about that. I'm saved by faith. Right? If you say anything counter to that, Tim, well, that's just not right. You know, well, 
You know, similarly, in the same way we need to have a biblical understanding of what it means to speak in tongues, we have to have a biblical understanding of what it means, uh, this concept of faith and works, right? So let's turn over. Actually, you don't need to turn. I'll just read it real quick. In Ephesians chapter 2, we, we get a great little snapshot of this theology and, and what it means to God and how and why we are saved. In verse 8, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So there, there it is, right? We've been saved by faith, not by works. Of course, that's exactly what the Bible says. We need to understand that. We need to believe that. Otherwise, we're given over to pride, guilt, whatever the case may be, right? But the passage doesn't stop there. Paul continues, and in verse 10 he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, one of my favorite little sayings that I steal from Ed, I don't feel bad about stealing it from Ed because I have little doubt that he stole it from someone else, but, you know, we are not saved by works, and yet we are not saved by from works. Indeed, we are saved for works. That's what the Bible says. It says it right here. You know, we all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Matthew chapter 25. Well, what can be done if I don't do? Right? Doing is absolutely necessary for things to get done. You know, but the truth is, we're inhibited. We have these inhibitors in our life, these things that hold us back, these things that, that stumble, uh, that cause us to stumble, these things that we allow to get inside our heads or get inside our hearts and, and, and stop us from doing the work that God created in advance for us to do. And I thought maybe we could take some time today and look at some of those inhibitors and talk about it. These are, this is by no mean a, a, a comprehensive list of inhibitors. This is not a, 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 a list of the most important or the, or the most challenging. It's just what came to mind, right? You know, the first inhibitor that I struggle with on a daily basis is this thought that I'm unfruitful. My work leads to nothing. I, I reach out to people, they don't respond. I, 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 I read the Bible to people and, and they're not changed. I, I, I get with my brothers in the faith and we, and we, we expose each other and we, 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 we call ourselves higher and we call ourselves to a repentance and we commit to it and yet the repentance doesn't come. I'll, 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 I'll do a rotation in children's ministry and, and I'll see a young, young person and I'll say, you know what? Next couple of months, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach that young man self-control. But at the end of the four, week, four months, he's worse off than when I started. My work is unfruitful. Why bother? That, that inhibits me greatly. But, but you know, a, a passage in the Bible that I cling to, and I was so grateful when I read it. It, it filled me with joy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's giving this, what, what to most of us is probably a very familiar talk about Apollos and himself. And, and, and he's saying, you know, he's talking about the work that's happened in the church. He's talking about the fruitfulness of the church and the, and the growth in the church. And he says, you know, I, I, I planted and Apollos watered, but, but God gives the growth. You know, he's saying, saying the fruit belongs to God. 
But then he goes on to say uh, in verse 8, he says, but each one will be rewarded for his work. He says that in, in, in other, in other uh, translations, it, it, it says uh, the worker will receive his wages according to his labor. You know, it's, it's not the fruit that I'm responsible for, right? God owns the fruit. I have no idea what's going to come of the work that, that, I, that I do, the works that have been prepared for me in advance, according to Ephesians 2. I have no idea what's going to come of that. That's not mine to be concerned with. You know, God owns the fruit. It's on me to decide whether I'll work or not, right? You know, and, you know just, just imagine, you know, take, uh, you know take, take Jamie, for instance. Imagine Jamie standing before Jesus. And Jesus looks at him lovingly and says, Jamie, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, Jamie's filled with emotion and he starts to tear up as he often does. And he says, 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 Jesus, how can you say that to me? I was so unfruitful. The work that I did was unfruitful. It, it, it brought about nothing. You know, I, 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 was, I was a worthless servant to you, Jesus. And Jesus looks lovingly at Jamie again, and then he, he, he directs his attention to this multitude of people, most of whom Jamie's never even seen. And he says, Jamie, you did the work that I prepared for you in advance. And that work, coupled with this and that and this and that, that you never saw and never knew, I used that Amen. to grow and bring about fruit. These people have been saved by me, but through you. Let us not be inhibited by this concept of fruitfulness. We don't get to decide whether we bear fruit or not. We do get to decide, and we are the sole deciders of whether we will work. You know, when I was in the military, they would say, Reese, I can't make you do anything, but I can make you wish you had. <laughs> but you know, in the same way, in the same way, God's not going to make us work. If you're waiting for him to make you do something, it's not going to happen. We decide whether we're going to do the works that have been created for us in advance. Let us not be inhibited by this concept of, and this prideful concept, quite frankly, of fruitfulness. Second inhibitor that I want to talk about, I'm too busy. Mm. Ever say that? I say it all the time. And it's the truth. We are too busy. We're all too busy. If you're over the age of seven, you've got too much going on in your life. You are busy. We are busy. But you know, I think that it's intellectually dishonest of us to talk about being busy if we don't, in the same conversation, acknowledge our laziness and the time that we waste in useless pursuits or perhaps selfish ambition. You know, um, in, uh, in, in, in Matthew 25, I mentioned it earlier, the, the, the parable of, of the talents where the, the master, he, he has these three servants and uh, he, he gives these, these, these coins, this, this, this money. And, uh, you know, he comes back to, to, to receive an account for what's been done. And one comes and says, look, you gave me this and I did this with it. And here's the fruit. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. The next one, same thing, right? Well done. But then this one servant comes and says... I didn't really do anything with what you gave me. And the rebuke that's given is you wicked and lazy servant. It's this, this contrast between 
well done and lazy, coupled with wickedness, right? It's, it's, you know, laziness is, an, is a cultural epidemic for us right now, and we have to be open about it. We have to be honest with it. We, we, have, to, we have to look at it clearly. Um, we, we worship laziness in our country. We all want to uh, work hard enough till the day comes when we don't have to work, right? That, that's like the fruit of your labor is no more work, right? Um, our, because of our great wealth and because of our great technology, we have so many enablers to laziness. We have so many distractors that take us away from the work that is to be done. You know, I can, I can walk in on my son, and I'm not, son, you're not, I'm not saying you're lazy. You're, you're, you're good with me, all right? But, but just, to, just to illustrate the challenges, right? I can walk in on my son. He can be sitting on the couch with, with, this, with this handheld game, right? And it's got controllers on each side, and it's got a screen. And, and the screen alone is, the graphics are better than most of the movies I saw when I was a kid, right? And, I, and it's like, wow. And you look at it. So he's got that. And then over here on the coffee table, he's got his phone propped up. And it's playing a, a video. <laughs> And, 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 and it's, it's some guy telling him how to play the game that he's playing, right? And he's, he's back and forth doing this, right? And, and over in the corner of the room is a television that's on. And he swears he's watching the show, right? And, 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 and so we've got this going on, right? And he's got his headphones in. I don't know what... I, 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 I assume he's listening to the Bible, of course, on, on, on audio. But... But, but you look at this and you've got, right, you, you've got, you, you, you see somebody who's very busy and, and, and you know, we laugh, but that, this isn't a kid thing, it's an adult thing too. You've all got your iPads and your whatever it is and, and uh, you're yelling at uh, Alexa over in the corner to bring you a soda or, and, and, uh, and, and you've got this vision of somebody who's going from screen to screen and, and, and very busy, very busy doing nothing. Nothing, right? Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to recreate, right? That's part of a healthy lifestyle. I'm not saying that you don't need to decompress from time to time. I am certainly not saying that you shouldn't get rest and take care of yourself, right? But we do these things so that we can be better equipped to do the work that's been set before us, prepared in advance by God. When these pursuits, whatever they are, when they get in the way of us doing the work that has been prepared in advance, well, then that's a problem, right? And, and we have chosen to allow that inhibitor to rule in our lives and not the work that has been set before us by God. We can't let busyness uh, inhibit us. Third inhibitor. I got issues at home. My marriage is a mess. My kids are a mess. I can't. I have nothing to offer. What could I possibly do for God? How, how, can, I, how, can, I poss- how can my life be attractive to someone else? What am I going to do? Invite them into my home so they can watch my wife and I argue? That's not going to bring people to Christ. You know, what I need to do is get my... My marriage fixed first and then I can serve. Or get my kids squared away first and then I can serve. But you know, I was thinking about this this last week when, when we were having a lesson about the apostles. And, and Ed did this great, it was a great lesson about 
the 12 apostles and what they did in the book of Acts and what, what church history tells us they did after the book of Acts. And we see these heroic lives. And I think about Peter. What do we know about Peter? Well, we know that Peter was married. And we know from Luke chapter 4 that, that Peter had a mother-in-law. You know, the Bible says that Jesus went to Peter's house to heal his mother-in-law. So it's not out of the question. In fact, it's quite likely that his mother-in-law lived with him. So brothers, think about that. What's that going to do for your marriage? Right? Now, honey, if, if your mom moves in with us, I'm... I'm over today. That would be awesome. But I'm told that some men might struggle with that. Right? You know, Peter probably didn't have a perfect marriage. Peter was a fisherman. Jarvis was talking about that today. The life of a fisherman, it wasn't a leisurely life. It wasn't, it wasn't, you didn't go fishing for fun. You didn't go fishing uh, for excitement, right? Fishing was a hard life. They would fish all night. Sometimes it was a disappointing life, as Jarvis pointed out. You fish all night, catch nothing. You don't fish if you're independently wealthy. You don't fish unless you need money. You don't fish unless you have mouths to feed, expenses to deal with. That's what drives a man to fish. But we know that he walked away from his nets when Jesus called him. In Luke chapter 18, he says to Jesus, we've left everything. How do you think that went over with Mrs. Peter? when she found out that her husband has quit his job. He has no way to support us anymore. He's following this Jesus, right, that we don't even know about. And we know that later he dragged his wife into the mission field with him. 1 Corinthians 9, you can read about that. There's no doubt in my mind, and especially, we, have, we, don't, let's not even, we haven't even talked about Peter's personality <laughs> and what kind of a husband he might have been. But Peter had marital issues, there's no doubt in my, in my mind. No doubt in my mind. But he had, he had something to do. There were works that had been created for him in advance. And, and, and that same spirit that empowered him to go out and do those works, despite the challenges of his life, despite his obvious financial problems, despite his likely marital challenges, he went out and he did the works that were set before him in advance. I'm not saying that we don't deal with our problems, right? If you've got marital issues, and, which we all do from time to time, we have to deal with them. That's, that's righteous, right? If your kids are not doing well, by all means, if not you, who? is going to help them and, and give attention to that. But let's face it. If you're having problems in your marriage, it's probably because there's not too much Jesus there, right? I, I, I'm, I'm doing too much for God, it's hurting my marriage. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my faith so much that it's messing my kids up. That's not what's happening in your life. I mean, maybe, but I seriously doubt it. Chances are more Jesus, not less, is exactly what your life and your wife and your husband and your kids need. Let's not be inhibited by these things. You know, and lastly, I'll talk about uh, this one. I don't know my Bible that well. I'm too new. You know, I, 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 I don't know what to say when people challenge me on that. I don't know what, peop- I don't, I don't know what to say when people question me, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm trying to proclaim the wonders of God to them and they... And they throw up this question. I don't know what to say. I just don't know my Bible. As a side point, know your Bible. Right? Read your Bible. It's the Word of God. Right? Um, 
find a way to fit it into your life. Uh, you know, I've, I've been really convicted lately, just, just even in our own church culture, at how easy we as leaders try to make it for us to read the Bible. Right? You know, your, your phone has a thousand different easy plans for which you can read the Bible every day. You know, Ed, I love Ed. God love Ed. I, I would do the same thing if I were him. But you know, he'll come. Hey, if you just read one chapter a day, you can get through and take weekends off. And you can get through the New Testament by the end of the year. I, I, I applaud those things. Whatever it takes to draw us into the Bible. Amen. But can you picture Jesus walking around going, hey, come be my disciple. I've made it really easy. It's only going to take you 15 minutes a day. And you can, you, can, you, can, you can live the life of discipleship. We've got to get convicted about that. All right? We've got to get convicted about what we do with our time. If you don't know the Bible, learn the Bible. If you don't like to read, listen. There's just you know, the same technology that's, that sucks you into nothingness from time to time can empower you to learn the Word of God in an entirely new way. But that's not my point. Um, this idea of... I'm too new. I don't know the Bible. I can't reach out. I can't proclaim the wonders of God to others. You consider Philip. Philip meets Jesus in in chapter 1 of of, of the book of John. Jesus says, follow me. And and Philip does. Philip's apparently an agreeable kind of guy. Right? So, okay, I'll follow you. Trusting. Right? And in his followership of Jesus, he he goes and finds Nathaniel. He says, hey, Nathaniel, we... uh, we think we found the one, the one that, that Moses wrote about. You know, Nathaniel, Nathaniel's not an agreeable guy. Nathaniel's not a trusting guy. He's a, he's a skeptic. And he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip didn't have an answer. He couldn't match him point for point. He didn't say, hey, let's go check out the Old Testament. Let's go look at the prophets and see what they say about the one to come. He didn't have that knowledge. Apparently, he didn't use it. He just said, come and see. You know, Nathaniel, just come and see. He took him to Jesus, and, and Nathaniel's life was changed. Certainly not by any skill that Philip had. No knowledge that Philip had. His, 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 his eloquent words. That's not what changed Nathaniel's life. He just simply said, come and see. We can all do that. We can all invite people into our lives, invite people to church. Come. I don't know the Bible, but I know someone who does. Let me introduce you to him, her, whoever it is, right? A group of people. We'll figure it out on our own together, but let's not ignore it because it proclaims the wonders of God. And I have to proclaim the wonders of God because that's the work that has been set before me to do in advance. You know, the the, the Holy Spirit... If we allow it, we'll destroy these inhibitions. That's what it does. It empowers us to work. And it's funny, we haven't talked about it, but in verse 13, you can read in, in Acts chapter 2, where the, some in the crowd thought they were drunk. Right? They thought they'd had too much wine. And you have to kind of wonder about that. What, what is it about being filled with the Holy Spirit? What about that resembles drunkenness? <laughs> right? You know, and, and, and in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul's talking to the, to the Ephesian church. And he, and he says something that's very interesting. If, if you just read over it and don't give it a thought, you can miss it. But he, he says to them, don't be drunk on wine that leads to debauchery. 
but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. He draws this kind of a compare and contrast between drunkenness and being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, what's the connection there? You know, I think the connection is, is this. You know, he, Paul says himself, being drunk on wine leads to debauchery. How does that happen? Because it lowers your inhibitions, right? It lowers your inhibitions so that you will do things that you wouldn't normally do, right? It lowers your inhibitions so that your sinful nature can have free reign in your life. These in, some of these inhibitors are good, right? They keep us from doing the things that, that, are, that, are, that our fleshly nature would enjoy doing. He says, don't do that. Because it lowers your inhibitions so that the sinful nature can take over, leading you to debauchery. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, likewise lowers your inhibitions. But not so that your sinful nature takes over, but so God takes over. You know, drunkenness allows our sinful nature to have its way with us. But the Holy Spirit, if we give way to it, allows God to have His way with us. Are you willing to let God have His way with you today? You know, in Genesis chapter 11, we, about a year ago today, we, we, we had a lesson on Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. It was a great lesson, as I recall. Um, but uh, it, we, we see God bringing in, through language, through diverse languages, God brings in an age of confusion and separation onto the earth, dividing the nations. And here in Acts chapter 2, we see God again using language to draw in all nations, to draw everyone into, into unity of the Spirit. And it happened at Pentecost, the festival of the first fruits. And later, probably next week, we'll read about the first fruits of that amazing harvest that took place on Pentecost. Pentecost. There could have been no better day for such a thing to happen. And you know, centuries later, in, in the history of the church, the Holy Spirit came upon you yeah. if you're a Christian. If you've, been, if you've repented and been baptized and chosen to a life of discipleship with Jesus. And, and it's calling you to continue in the work of this harvest, this harvest that kicked off back in Pentecost. It's calling you to put your hand to the plow and not look back as you do the work you have been saved to do as the harvest continues. You know, church... Let us give way to that which empowers us, that spirit that can overcome our inhibitions. Let us leave behind our empty self-indulgences that, that hinder us. And let's instead live lives of exhilaration and significance. Lives of discipleship to Jesus, serving joyfully in the harvest of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.